Searching the Scriptures with Watchman Alexander, Episode 15. Is everybody in the world going to die before someone finds the answer? Do I have to remind you that theory is the beginning of solution? What are we up against? Is it a dangerous thing? All I've ever known to be true is a lie. I didn't say it would be easy. I just said it would be the truth. Welcome to Searching the Scriptures with Watchman Alexander, where we break away from religious systems and man-made dogma to learn the Word of God from an independent Hebraic perspective. And now your host, the prophecy buff who tackles the tough stuff, Alexander Lawrence. Hello and shalom. The hour is late, the time is short, and the storm is coming. So this is your opportunity for a systems check. I'm here to wake up the sleeping servants of Yahweh God and equip them for the last days. I do that by teaching discernment, pouring over prophecies, treating the infection of mystery Babylon in the church, and giving you courage. My book is Leviathan's Ruse, the comprehensive guide to the battle between good and evil. My website is watchmanalexander.com. So in today's episode, I have a guest, John Pounders from Now You See TV, who is kind enough to, uh, to join me and talk about the book of Enoch, first Enoch, and the technology of the watchers. And so I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Thanks for joining me, John. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on, Alexander. I appreciate it, man. It was a great finally meeting you face-to-face in Austin, and um, I really enjoy what you're doing with your ministry. I see it growing and growing, and it's, it's amazing to see that. Thanks. Yeah, that was a good time. Uh, the whole conference was really interesting, and I wish I had uh, caught a little bit more of your stuff. I was out front kind of helping with registration, but um, I caught one of your your talks and for the most part. And then the other one, I caught bits and pieces, but I still need to go back and, and take a look at all of that. Um, but you were covering some pretty interesting stuff. And one of the things that you talked about was ancient technology. And so I thought this would be a good opportunity for us to cover that topic in a little bit more detail and uh, and specifically to... Talk about First Enoch and how instructive that is to uh, not only understanding what's happened in the past, but even where we are today. Yeah, man, th- this has been an interesting study for me because um, really I started out studying the book of Enoch. Myself and, and David Carrico are going through the entire book of Enoch and doing a video commentary on every chapter, and we're lining it up with scripture. And so throughout that study, I learned quite a bit of things. And then I also... Um, you know, I guess the the verse that kind of stood out to me when I first read this, and, and it made me wonder why, uh, but is Enoch chapter 10, verse 8, and it says, The whole world has been corrupted through the works that were taught by Azazel, to him ascribe all sin. So you see there that all sin is ascribed to Azazel, and that was something that really struck me. And then as you, most people that are listening may or may not know, but they're on the Day of Atonement every year, after that, they had they have this thing where they have this scapegoat, and the word scapegoat is actually Azazel in Hebrew, where they have one goat that they send out into the wilderness and throw off a cliff, and uh, to to 
to send to Azazel, to send out into um, the wilderness. And so uh, this is kind of a shadow picture of what happened there. And I wondered, you know, why did Azazel get ascribed all sin? But we see in Genesis 6 where it talks about when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born into them, that the sons of Elohim uh, took wives. And uh, you can read this in Genesis chapter 6. And the word sons of Elohim there um, is B'nai Elohim in Hebrew. And you only find that a few times in scripture. And one of them, in Gen- or I think the most telling one uh, is this one. And also in Job, uh, where it talks about the sons of God being before the throne. And also in Job 38, where it talks about them be rejoicing on the day that Yahweh made the heavens and the earth and he and the way the day that he put the foundations of the earth in place and so there's no other humans that were around during that time so we know it's talking about angels and just and enoch kind of continues that narrative and you know after studying the book of enoch and really going through it there's so many messianic prophecies i mean i you know in the presentation i did i went over uh well actually i don't know if i did that on austin but there's over um 40 different messianic prophecies that i um brought out in there and just yeah, it's amazing it. it is it is amazing and when i say messianic a lot of people think automatically when you say messianic you're talking about messianic judaism you're talking about something like that but we're talking about prophecies of the messiah and what he does and so it's it's super interesting just amazing content in there and um yeah let's, i guess so let's talk about that for a second because that's one of the reasons that I think that first Enoch, not second or third Enoch. Okay, we're talking about first Enoch. When we say the book of Enoch, we're talking about the right the first one. Um, the second and third ones, it seems, are um, not the not the result of someone uh, godly writing them, and it seems they were written much later in history. But um, first Enoch has a lot of great content and and good support to it, um, but. A lot of people are going to be wondering, why should we trust this? So you brought up the the fact that there's messianic components to this. Um, you can expound on that. But why else? Tell us, why should we trust First Enoch? Well, okay, so when you look at the kind of the history behind first, the First Enoch, and you're right about Second and Third Enoch, I haven't got a chance to read them all the way through, but they, you get a different feeling when you read it. You, you know, there's an automatic, um, I guess, just... I, if you if somebody were to read it, they would see what I'm talking about. You can feel that there's inspiration in what it, what is being written there, and, and the fact that it doesn't contradict the Bible is a big telltale sign as well. But uh, one of the one of the things that we notice is in the Bible, okay, it actually quotes the Book of Enoch word for word, and this is something that if the Bible gives it credence, then we should maybe take a look at it. And I think a lot of reason a lot of people have been uh, hesitant to give it credence is because they didn't know how old it was. But after the Dead Sea Scrolls findings, we realized that it's very ancient and that the original believers did consider it scripture. And um, also we have many, many scholars such as Tertullian, um, just all these scholars that firmly believe that this is the case, that this is the Book of Enoch. And not only is it the Book of Enoch, but it should be taken as scripture. And um, having combed through it all myself if word for word um, I can truly say that there is nothing that contradicts the word of God in there the canon that we call the canon and um, just the idea that Jude chapter 1 14 15 you could you could be reading this out of Enoch chapter 1 it says and Enoch also the seventh from Adam prophesied of these saying behold 
Yahweh cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. And this exact same phrase there, word for word in Enoch chapter 1 verse 9. And um, James H. Charlesworth, he's the director of the Dead Sea Studies at Princeton Theological Seminary. And he says that the Old Testament and uh, Pseudepigrapha in the New Testament, in, the, in his book there, um, it's you can get that on Trinity Press International. It says, I have no doubt that the Enoch groups deemed the book of Enoch as fully inspired as any biblical book. I'm also convinced that the group of Jews behind the Temple Scrolls, which is surely pre-Qumranic, would have judged it to be quintessential Torah that is equal to and perhaps better than Deuteronomy then we should perceive the pseudepigrapha as that as they were apparently judged to be God's revelation to humans and um, the book of Enoch was considered scripture to the uh, Barnabas the, in the epistle of Barnabas if you look in chapter 16 verse 4 and by many of the early church fathers um, Athenagoras is one Clement of Alexandria Irenaeus Tertullian uh, all of those people gave it very high marks and also considered it scripture. Tertullian actually said that, uh, and I can, I'll can i read this quote if you'd like me to, it's in the Prophecy of Enoch, um, that he, concerning the geniuses of the Prophecy of Enoch is the book in chapter 3. It says, I'm aware that the scripture of Enoch, which has assigned this order uh, to angels, is not received by some because it is not admitted into the Jewish canon either. I suppose they did not think that having been published before the deluge, it could have been safely survived that worldwide calamity, the abolisher of all things. If that is the reason for rejecting it, let them recall to their memory that Noah, their survivor of the deluge, was the great-grandson of Enoch himself, and he, of course, had heard and remembered from domestic renown and hereditary tradition concerning his own great-grandfather's grace in the sight of God and concerning all his preachings. Since Enoch had given no other charge to Methuselah than that he should hand on the knowledge of them to his posterity. Noah, therefore, no doubt might have succeeded in the trusteeship of his preaching, or had the case been otherwise, he would not have been silent alike concerning the disposition of things of the things made by God, his preserver, and concerning the particularly glory of his own house. And so, you know, if you don't believe that Enoch has validity, um, then probably everything I'm going to say here right now is not going to be of any value of anybody to anybody. But I, I truly believe it is, and and I wouldn't say that about. There's no other books like apocryphal books that I uh, truly give this high of marks to, and it's not because I um, don't like them. It's just because I haven't studied them like I have the Book of Enoch. The Book of Enoch I've went through probably 50 times or more uh, in my studies, and and I truly truly believe uh, in its inspiration. Yeah, so do I. And I think that the argument that you just read, was that a quote from Tertullian? Tertullian, yep. He has a perfectly valid argument there that this could have been preserved by Noah and and surely would have, considering that that was the, the righteous line that came out of Enoch. Um, and Noah would have brought probably a number of materials with him on the ark to preserve them. And uh, this scripture that had come to Enoch, an inspired word from God, it certainly would have been preserved. And then it would have been copied down through history, just like the other scriptures. And so the arguments that this came out of the second temple period that it originated there, 
to me is ridiculous because the book itself claims to be from Enoch. And if you're going to call it pseudoepigraphal, then you're basically saying that the person who wrote it is a liar because you would have to um, pretend to be who you're not in order to put forth something like this and have it accepted. And that makes you a liar, a deceiver. Uh, so it's either the product of a deceiver or it was written by who it says that it was, which means that it comes from the uh, pre-Diluvian world. Right. And, and when Jude... I was going to add one thing to that. Yeah. When, you know, if it's written by deceiver, the deceiver does not do a good job of uh, keeping people away from wanting to learn the truth about the Messiah, because all of those messianic prophecies in there just really bend your ear to what it's all about. And I can, I can imagine that the rabbis probably did not want that in there. I mean, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense because they didn't want to accept the Messiah because it's clear when you read those messianic prophecies, which there's more of them in Enoch than there are in the rest of the scriptures combined. Uh, they clearly are talking about Jesus, the Jesus that came uh, during the second temple period. And there's no doubt about it when you read them. It calls him son of man over and over again, which is not something we find in any of the other scriptures except for Daniel. He's the only one that calls this pre-incarnate Messiah, the son of man. Why did Yeshua call himself that? Obviously, he was referencing back to Enoch because that's where we see that phrase used over and over again. And Enoch also calls him the anointed one, which means Messiah. So he's seen this spirit in heaven that is at the right hand of God, and he's calling him the anointed one. Obviously, that is the Messiah that the Christians were teaching about in the early period after Yeshua's resurrection. And so the Jewish leaders would have absolutely hated this book that they previously liked and circulated because they were um, teaching from Enoch. They were circulating Enoch until the first to second century when the Christians were using it as leverage for their message. Right. And then they said, oh, okay, well, we got to quietly get rid of this because this is supporting our enemies. Exactly. And, and, and we have the verification in Jude as well that, like you already read it, um, but I just wanted to point out that he says that Enoch prophesied. Before he quotes Enoch, he says the word prophesied. So he's treating this as if it was something from the mouth of God, not as if it was some you know, fictional writing that just happens to teach some good concepts that we can draw from. He actually affirms it by saying this was a prophecy. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it's it's really hard to get around the idea that Enoch isn't that. And a lot of people will deny it just because it doesn't fit their, um, I guess, their ideas of certain things, such as uh, the idea of there being a place where souls are stored or people are stored uh, after death and uh, you know, which the Bible does talk about the you know, the bosom of Abraham. It talks about that in Enoch, which there's a lot of people that would deny that there's a place of fire, a place of burning. A lot of people would deny that the sons of God mentioned in Genesis 6 are actually angels. They believe they're the sons of Seth. So if it doesn't fit their paradigm, uh, people are very quick to throw it out. That's true. Yeah. Uh, but if they knew the rest of the scriptures... They, if they knew him well, they would understand there is a Sheol. There are different divisions in Sheol. There are sons of God that are talked about over and over again. So I think it's those kinds of objections are coming from a place of naivety um, about what the scriptures say. Yeah, most definitely. And when you look at ancient history, and that's you know kind of where I went with this stuff. If you look at ancient history, you see this story 
uh, of these watchers and these entities coming down and having children. Uh, you see that in every ancient civilization. Every, I mean, you can't name an ancient civilization where you do not see this exact same story. And um, this is kind of where it takes us, but it takes us from a biblical perspective of these entities because in Greek and Roman and uh, Chinese and, I mean, you name it, any mythology that you can come across, these are called gods and their children are called demigods. And so in this narrative, we get these fallen angels or these entities that come down, these watchers uh, having children, and they're called Nephilim and giants in the scripture. And that's all throughout the Bible. You can read about giants before and after the flood. Absolutely. Yeah, it's everywhere in the ancient world. So let's talk about the sons of God. You started out speaking about Azazel, who is one of them listed in Enoch. But who were the watchers exactly? And um, why were they on earth? Okay, so here here's something that I didn't get to get to in the in the um, presentation, but I'll kind of give a, an explanation. A lot of people think there were two incursions that happened in the book of Enoch, which I, I disagree with because in Enoch chapter 69 is where they kind of get this idea because it talks about an, a, a group of beings uh, that are not the same names mentioned. Uh, so we have these five five or six, I believe it's five, I don't have it in front of me right now, five entities that are in connection with all of this stuff. And throughout the book of Enoch, you have mention of Satans, plural. You have several Satans that are mentioned. And in this book, chapter 69 of Enoch, you have uh, five entities, which I believe are the Satans, because one of them, it says, was responsible for causing Eve to eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And one of them was in charge of tricking these watchers to come down. And one of them was in charge of tricking them to defile themselves with women. And so these aren't different watchers that did the same thing. These are the ones that actually tricked these watchers to come down. So you have the story of 200 watchers descending to Mount Hermon. And I believe they were literally tricked by Satan because a lot of people have the question, well, how does Satan play into all this? Where is he mentioned? Why wasn't he uh, chained up and bound up? You know, was he one of these watchers? He wasn't one of these watchers. He's been around and his whole goal according to Enoch and according to the rest of scripture is to be an adversary and to constantly try to trick people into sinning uh, try to cause people to stumble and, and his goal was no different with these watchers so in Enoch chapter 7 uh, verse 1 it says and they all and all the others together with them took wives and they chose for chose one for each of themselves they taught them charms enchantments cutting of roots um, made them acquainted with plants so they taught them all these different um ways to to make things they taught them different sciences in enoch chapter 8 it talks about them teaching them to make them swords knives shields breastplates uh made known to them all the metals of the earth uh the beautifying of eyelids antimony uh costly stones so you know like gold silver all these different things and then um and they were let they had i guess enchantments they had uh, they taught them astrology they taught them all the knowledge of the clouds, all the signs of the earth, signs of the sun, the courses of the moon. And they, they basically brought on all of the ancient knowledge. And, and so we see, we look at back in history and we see that there was some kind of ancient technology that built the pyramids, that built all these ancient structures. We have old machines that are being found that are thousands of years old. We have um, so many different things. We have ancient texts that we can look in and see concepts that we uh, consider new concepts, but to them, they happened thousands of years ago. I mean, whole civilizations 
wiped out from some of these technologies that we have today and so we see all this stuff and um so they they could also you know one of the things about these watchers and in the book chapter 19 um of enoch and in verse one it says um let me go ahead and read it. It says, And Euro said to me, Here shall stand the angels who have connected themselves with women, and their spirits, assuming many different forms, are defiling mankind and will lead them astray into sacrificing to demons. Uh, and, and here shall they stand till the great day of judgment, in which they will be judged till they are made an end of. And so, obviously, we look at um, also in, in verse, um, I believe it's ver- in the next verse there, it talks about them being able to. F- assume different forms in verse one it says the spirits assuming many different forms uh talks about is that talking about the watchers themselves or the spirits of their sons the giants or the nephilim who died off uh there's it says in their spirits so i believe the watchers themselves could actually assume different forms and we see a lot of this stuff and and i think that the watchers their children also uh, they had chimeras, they had different kinds of entities because it also says they defiled themselves with animals. And so we see, I mean, if you look at, if you look at like Egyptian hieroglyphics, you look at, um, tablets, you look at all these things, we have serpent gods, you have bird gods. I mean, you look at Thoth, you look at all the different serpent gods that are all over the world. I mean, you, you can look, there's a book that I have, it's called the fingerprint of God and I'm reading it right now, but it's a really, really good depiction of all the different serpentine cultures around that worship these serpent gods and i believe that these these actually these uh angels that came down were probably seraphim and, and in the hebrew uh the word seraphim means fiery serpent so a lot of these were serpents uh, at the core anyway and uh but yeah i think that a lot of a lot of this them being able to transfer into other kinds of deities is why we have so many different religions in the world um, I mean, we have records of bones being discovered uh, of what we would call, I guess, hybrids uh, that stand up to 30 feet and weighing way more than a thousand pounds. And, and I guess one of the best proofs that I kind of found on this was this. Um, and this is the reason it's the best proof is because I found so many different news articles uh, that confirmed that this happened. But it was like a giant ape man, like something we've been seeing in King Kong, but more upright like a man. And um, I found five different newspaper articles from different parts of the world um, in 19, they're on 1934. And this, they found this skeleton in Jubalapur, India, and it measures 32 feet in length. And there's, um, like I said, there's different different ones that uh, make this discovery. And one of them, uh, there's a new newspaper called the Argus and um, it states that the skeleton was 31.5 feet long and it was believed to be that of a giant ape and it was discovered by a farmer that saw bones protruding out of the sand and uh, when he tried to remove the skeleton he couldn't do it and they had to call the chief of state in and it took three men to only lift the leg bones and the leg bones were 10 feet tall Uh, so the leg bones were as tall as goliath just the leg bones and um, and there's also West the West Australian that tells the same story, and you have the Sydney Herald, and then you have the Times that tells this exact same story, and you can get all these things. Uh, there's I, I can't remember the let's see what's the site I use. I believe it was um, let me look at the site, but there, this is one of my favorite resources. Um, That's amazing stuff um, while you're looking that up. So let me slow you down a little bit, though, because I've got some listeners who are not going to be terribly familiar with all of this. So I want to go back and and clarify 
um, there were you were saying there were satanic spirits or there were these adversarial immortals who incited or seduced these watcher immortals, which is a certain class of the angels, which I call immortals. They seduced them to go after women, to start lusting and to take these women and procreate with them. And the result from that was various types of giants. And the book of Enoch says that some of these giants got absolutely enormous. Now, I don't know exactly what the numbers translate to in our measurement systems well, some, these some days. Some of them would be like three or 400 feet, and that's magnificently huge. I mean, that, uh, oh. yeah, it's magnificent. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's correct. I mean, what? It, you, would, you would certainly have to have an entire different type of environment than we have now, which was the case before the flood, but that stretches the imagination. Maybe that got corrupted, or maybe it's true, and I just don't have a big enough imagination. Well, I I can see there's this one, okay, on, so on the... Um, on the commentary that we did on the book of Enoch, uh, there's, there's a YouTube channel people can go look at, uh, but there is a, there is a guy on there. It's called mud fossils. And he, um, he's an expert in human anatomy and he goes to these different sites, these pictures of these huge rock formations that are actually in the shape of pretty much the shape of giants. They look like giants laying down on the ground or whatever. And he shows, uh, real muscle tendons and he also shows different capillaries and stuff like that and actually points these out in these massive three to four hundred foot structures that are on the ground and he believes that these are actually fossilized human remains of these giants that are laying out there and he does a really really compelling job of making the point that these are actually giants i mean giants when you go check it out it's really hard to deny that these are actually muscle tendons that we're looking at capillaries that we're looking at and um it's it's pretty amazing uh, to look at and i i thought the same thing when i read it i'm like three four hundred feet now that is like that i mean you could see that thing coming for miles that's massive but um after looking at the mud fossils page, the guy that does this research on this, I don't, I don't know that it's uh, as far-fetched as we may think. I mean, we see, um, obviously, people lived thousands of years back then. Uh, things lived longer, uh, were taller. The, you know, the, I guess, um, I think it's in Daniel. But it talks about a tree that the whole world could see. It's so tall that you could see it for hundreds of miles. And so I don't know uh, for sure if that's the case, but that. If that is the case, I think that Mud Fossils does the best job of pointing out the idea and why we haven't found the bones is because these bones are what we would call like mountains now or what we would call um, giant rock structures that are just fragmented all over the all of the United States, or not just the United States, but the world. I'll have to look into that. But even if they were only this, <clears throat> excuse me, even if they only got up to the size of, say, dinosaurs, that's still massive. Right. And they were, because of their size, they were absolutely mistreating the regular sized humans. They were tyrannical. And eventually, because they couldn't get enough food, the Book of Enoch says they started to cannibalize. They were eating the regular sized humans. And then eventually they were eating each other and drinking blood. I mean, they were just terrible monsters, basically. Um, So that sort of helps people who aren't familiar with this understand what was going on back then. But then in addition to that, the watchers who, after they um, slept with women and produced offspring, they also began to give men the secrets of heaven. And we don't, we're not told exactly why I imagine it's probably as some kind of 
compensation for taking their daughters and their wives, but they gave them these occult secrets and occult just means hidden. These were the secrets of heaven that were hidden from people because we were supposed to stay more innocent. And yet uh, they revealed these things to us. And so God brought a, a very strong judgment, not only for them lusting and you know breaking the laws of heaven, but also for giving the knowledge of heaven. And that really is where the occult got started, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. That's That would be probably the most, I guess, antediluvian mysticism at that point uh, that the occult calls them the seven sacred sciences. And um, many believe that Nimrod actually found these things. And this is according to the book of Jubilees, actually, uh, which I don't know, you know, like I, like I've said, I can't give credence to the book of Jubilees or book of Jasher or any of those yet because I haven't studied them all the way through. But the book of Jubilees actually talks about Ham finding these secrets and hiding them from his uh, father Noah uh, because he didn't want Noah to find them and, and passing them on to Nimrod um, and being them being able to use them to kind of control the world at this point. And so um, these secrets allow, um, allow you know, knowledge is power. And, and that's a lot of people have figured that out. That's why the Vatican controls such a large library of books that we'll never get our hands on. This is why these occult secret societies actually you know, hide this information from the normal average person because when they can have this information and control this information, they can control civilizations. When they can control how things work, when they know how everything works, I mean, from the art of music to the, um, you know, for, to the sciences in general, what we would call Scientology to quantum physics, when they know how they can control and use that stuff, they take it and they run with it and that's how they can control the world. So, mm-hmm. yeah, there's, there's a lot to so the, that, but yeah, there is a lot to it. There really is because as this knowledge survived, it changed hands. It, um, was developed, it changed form. And then as far as I can understand, a lot of it was lost because of wars, wars between kingdoms that wiped out civilizations and, uh, and the natural disasters, uh, that there are a few big ones after the flood, according to most civilizations, ancient records and legends that say that um, the changes that were occurring to the earth really separated people and wiped out a lot of the civilizations that had built up. And so, you know, the, the knowledge was dispersed, fragmented, lost in a lot of cases. And we've had to try to rediscover a lot of that stuff, which I think was God's grace to us that he was uh, preventing this stuff from getting out of control, you know, getting too big, uh, too well-known, too quickly. Yeah, I agree. I think that, um, you know, it, the Bible talks about the Antichrist coming and he will be able to understand dark sentences. And I think a lot of information that they have, they can't even understand yet. And they haven't been able to put into task at this point because of that. But, I mean, we have these stories. I mean, like the giant that I was mentioned before, an interesting uh, aspect of that is that um, in ancient Hindu Sanskrit, there's a giant named Hunaman. Uh, that has an ape-like face and is a leader of uh, forest dwellers. And at the temple of Lepakshi, uh, there's these giant footprints that are more than four foot long. Um, so, like, if you do the height to foot ratio on on your on the computer, if you would say, you know, my foot's this big, how tall am I, or how tall should I be? Um, if you do that math with that four foot long uh, footprint, then you're looking at 30 feet tall. 
And so most people believe that that's the same giant that was found in 1934. And so you see a lot of these texts. I mean, I did a comparison chart on my video that what 30 feet actually looks like to us, but you have King Aga Bashan, uh, which was probably close to 13 feet tall, maybe 16. Some people say 16 feet tall. And then you have Goliath, which was close to nine feet tall and man that was six feet tall. Goliath looks like a, um, a little person compared to this, um, a runt. Yeah. yeah. A runt. I mean, just tiny. I mean, the size of the lower part of his leg. And so, um, and of course, you know, skeletons, a lot of people are like, well, where are these skeletons at? But during that time, that was actually an English Jubilapur was an English province and uh, the record states that the London came and took the skeleton and so but there's also you know documented in the United States alone there's hundreds of newspapers and articles telling stories of giant skeleton findings um, and then you have the Lovelock cave which till recently you could actually go and view a giant skeleton or a giant um, skull there they had it there I mean I know pictures people have pictures of it because you could go there and actually look at it but uh, somebody came and took it uh, a few years back and so you can't even view it there but um, you know they these the offspring of these watchers the interesting thing is the offspring of these watchers were they're were doomed to a, an eternal life as evil spirits and um, this is this is where we get our demons in Enoch chapter 15 it says and the spirits of the giants afflict oppress destroy attack do battle and work destruction on the earth and cause trouble they take no food but nevertheless hunger and thirst and cause offenses and these spirits shall rise up against the children of men and against the women because they have proceeded from them uh, so we have you know mental bondage mind control physical persecution sorcery spiritual warfare um, and these are all results of these uh, children of these fallen ones that are still here with us on this earth as demons and spirits. And um, it's very interesting. A lot of the knowledge that we get, um, that people get, come from these entities as well. We have people channeling them. Uh, but it, before I go into that, if you had anything else to add or whatever to that, we can talk about it. Hold it right there, Watchman. Get a cup of tea. It's time for Everything Under the Sun when we take three minutes to hear from the watchman's wife, Amanda Lawrence. For today's segment, let's talk about simplicity. Simplicity is one of 12 spiritual disciplines expounded upon in Richard Foster's book, Celebration of Discipline and is one that, frankly, I struggle with. I would not call myself materialistic by any means. That term brings to mind celebrities with multiple cars, huge houses, and separate closets just for their shoes. However, I do have many articles of clothing hanging in my closet that I haven't worn in months. I have shelves of books that I have yet to read, and I have different types of glasses for water, red wine, white wine, etc. I've collected recipes over the years, and I couldn't get to all of them if I cooked three meals a day, every day, for two years. Maybe I should whittle that down. When I separate the tangible things that I need compared to the tangible things that I have, there is a stark contrast. I've been aware of it lately, over the past two years or so, and have been trying to pare down. And after all of the hurricanes, it's been on my mind more. What would I do if I lost every single possession I have? What would you do? Would I find it harder to define myself? Would you? I know that I would feel differently if I only had two changes of clothing and the absolute bare essentials. The spiritual practice of simplicity 
reminds us to stay grounded in who we are and to whom we belong. It helps us rely on God to provide and to fill in the gaps. After all, he owns all things, will supply all things, and is in control of all things. Living life a little bit smaller is a call to see worldly items for what they are, worldly, transient, and temporary. I've also been trying to implement this principle in my walk with Yahweh, too. I love praise music, Christian nonfiction books, small groups, podcasts, and going through a Bible study with a friend. But when I'm doing those things in place of praying and reading the Bible, well, as the watchman would say, it's time for a systems check. Filling our time with good things, even things for God, can be detrimental if it takes away from time with God. So I'm going back to the basics. Water and toast, sackcloth and ashes, praying and Bible reading. Okay, most of that is a lie. But if I want to be more focused on God, then I have to remove the other things. In this day and age, there's too much noise and too many distractions. So maybe it's time to go through your closets and donate things that you rarely wear. And perhaps it's not a bad idea to go through your house and see what you could do without. What are you living without right now, even though you have it? I mean, what items are you not using but simply keeping just to have? I'm not suggesting that you go crazy and toss everything that isn't necessary to live. Simplicity is a choice to exist in life-affirming freedom that by design points us to God. There's a sense of relief, of lightness that comes from casting away the excess. And all that's left will be him and he will be enough. As always, if you have a comment, a question, or a topic you would like me to cover, you can always reach me at thewatchmanswife at gmail.com. Okay, that break was just long enough for me to have a cup of peach ginger tea in a, I have to say, a very cute fox-shaped mug that my stepmother gave to me. Uh, Mother-in-law, excuse me. Uh, I'm not sure that I would pull it out when company was over, but just between me and you, I kind of like it. I don't know, man. I thought I saw you with it at the conference, but I guess maybe that was a different one. Oh, man, I thought I kept that in my bag. You saw that, huh? (laughs) Well... The fox is out of the bag now. So, yeah, everybody, I drink from a fox tea mug. (laughs) I've also got one with a skeleton on it. I don't know where that one came from. (laughs) You know, you got to keep it, keep it uh, different. Yeah. Well, coffee mugs as often as they, uh, as often as I go through them here in the house, I'll take anything I get because my kids seem to be magnetized towards breaking those things. So you have to protect just about everything from kids, tell you. They're like little Tasmanian devils sometimes. That's the truth. All right. So we were going to talk about the ancient technology that came from the Watchers and survived through the flood and what evidences we have in ancient records that there were um, devices, technologies that were created from the information that came from the Watchers. All right. So, you know, when we go to Ephesians chapter six, and this is biblical information that basically tells us that this is what we're doing battle against. And um, in Ephesians chapter six, it talks about putting on the whole armor of God so that we can stand against the laws of the devil. And it talks about not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers, darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. And when you look at the names of these these names that are attached to this you look at the greek um 
exusio is one of the words and it means authority influential power um those who will wills command a spiritual ruler uh those who possess authority and they're superior to humans and then you see thronos uh which is one seated on a throne or a king and you have ark which is a ruler or principality or magistrate and you have archon which are rulers commanders and chiefs then you have numa um Pneumatikos, which are our spirit beings, and you have Euperanios, uh, which are the heavens that uh, things that exist or take place in the heavens, and you have the Curitos, which is dominion, lordship, one who possesses dominion, and you have Cosmocrator, which is the lord of the world, prince of the age, Satan. And so these are the Greek words attached to these uh, words in English, and sometimes the English language is great, but the, in these instances, you have these. Uh, words that mean a little bit more than what we would normally think of when we read that and and in the context because uh, some of these words can uh, refer to human figures but in the context of it not being flesh and blood but it's spiritual entities um, it's safe to say that these indicate ancient spiritual entities and we learn in scripture and craft legend that somehow uh, the Nephilim bloodline uh, survived the flood. And there's different theories on that. Obviously, Skiba has his theory on that, which I, I tend to agree with. And there has other people who believe that there are other incursions after the fact and uh, whatever. But I'm not here to argue that point one way or the other. I think that, you know, there's any of those may or may not be possible. I don't know. But the, the fact is that after the flood, we have these giants uh, as tall as cedar trees, the children of the Raphaim. And we have you know, giants uh, such as Goliath who reached nearly nine feet tall, Gabashan, nine to 13 feet tall. And we have um, many practitioners of mystery religions and occult organizations that make sacrifice to demons and try to channel them to receive all this knowledge. So, um, and, and there's actually some bloodlines that even claim to be descendants of King Agabashan and different Nephilim. And so a quote from uh, the philosopher Plato, he says, the gods don't communicate to mortals directly, but intermediary spirits. So mortals need figures to communicate with gods, and thus demons, or daemon, becomes the fig figure needed of the petition of source evolving into sacrifices and initiations, incantations, prophecies, divinations, magic spells, and sacred poems. And Plato, a uh, very popular uh, person, uh, most people have no idea, his practices, his religious practices, but then you have uh, people like Aleister Crowley, you have um, Pythagoras, you you name it. All of these ancient uh, philosophers, ancient people were really into uh, channeling demonic entities. And you have people like Crowley that he was a very devoted Satanist and a high-level Freemason. Uh, he wrote he wrote and practiced human sacrifice, alchemy, sex magic. And um, he stated in his book that he had so many Masonic medals that it would def it would weigh down an elephant if um, if they were all placed upon that elephant. And we did a document documentary about uh, some of the things that he taught in his book called is Satanic Ritual Abuse, and it confirms just how wicked this guy is. And him he did a he did something called the uh, Amalantra workings and. Um, which led to the Babylon workings and those the Babylon workings were in 1945 through 1946 uh, they were a few months before Crowley's death in, in 1947 and they were right before the wave of unexplained uh, aerial phenomena that we call flying saucers in the great saucer flap great flying saucer flap and um, 
back in 1919 when he did his rituals, uh, when Crowley did his rituals, he had this entity um, known as Lamb. And this entity looks identical to what we would call gray aliens. And he sealed the portal after that. But there's actually like a cult group uh, called the Cult of Lamb that was formulated after that. Um, that you know I can talk about here in detail if you want me to here in a little bit. But then after after that working, Jack Parsons, which was a jet propulsion scientist, he was actually the leader of the OTO, the Order Templo Orientis, and he was um, a disciple of Aleister Crowley. And so he was you know in workings with him. But they did this form of ritual called the Babylon working, and they were patterned it after Crowley's working, the the Amalantra working. And uh, he, according to himself and, and the people of the OTO, if you read their, their writings, they open, reopened this portal Crowley that's, that Crowley had sealed. And he was, the, the goal of it was trying to receive the spirit of the Whore of Babylon. And, uh, but instead, flying saucers and gray aliens came out and infiltrated the earth. And he couldn't figure out how to close it. And so, um, the UFO sightings obviously have increased drastically since 19, that, that time, that 1940s era. Uh, we see a huge epidemic. I mean, we have now have Roswell there. We have uh, UFOs increasing, I think, 90% since then, um, whereas before it was very low. And I'm not sure exactly what they did, if this is 100% true. I mean, obviously, there's always the idea that it was just a bunch of mumbo-jumbo. But I believe... Uh, due to seeing what happened afterwards that they did in fact open up some kind of portal and we know that aliens um, I, I believe that aliens are actually demonic entities and I think most people that are believers would agree with me because I don't believe that there are actually aliens from other planets that are different species of humans or whatever that are coming to this earth and doing these things I believe that they're actually demonic entities and one of the reasons I believe that we, um, Joseph Jordan, have you heard of Joseph Jordan before? No, I haven't. Joseph Jordan is, um, he is a friend of mine. We've had him on Now You See TV before, and he um, is a field investigator for a group known as uh, MUFON, which is the Mutual UFO Network. And he's also the founder of the company called CE4 Research Group. And so after he became a believer, he... Uh, oh, yes. I know who this is. I'm sorry. Yeah. I am familiar with this. Yeah, he's an awesome guy. You should have him on your show sometime. But he has, he's, he, he'll tell you about these things. But after he became a believer, he read a case where um, this guy... And I'm not going to go into the graphic details of this. He, he'll go into the graphic details with you if you want him to. But basically, this guy was being tortured uh, by these aliens. And he didn't know what to do except he called on the name Jesus. And when he did this, these entities left. And uh, after Joseph read this, he went to his colleagues and asked, you know, why, uh, you know, has this happened before? Where is, is this, is this something that happens? And the colleagues off the record told him, yeah, we see this a lot, but we didn't know what to make of it. And also, you know, and so we haven't really brought it out. And he kind of like got leery, He's thinking, you know, well, these people are being tortured and, and you don't want to bring this stuff out when you see multiple, multiple cases of this stuff of people using the name Jesus to le make these entities leave. And um, he said he's recorded more than 400 cases of this happening. And, I, and it may be even more than that by now, but more than 400 cases of these 
entities leaving at the name of Jesus during his research and during his investigations uh, doing this. And so very interesting stuff. But, um, you know, one of the people that was actually involved in these Babylon workings with Jack Parsons was actually Jack Parsons' roommate. And most people will, will be familiar with this name, but his name was L. Ron Hubbard. And he was he founded the largest cult in the world right after this. Uh, he wrote Dianetics and founded the Church of Scientology. He was actually a roommate at Jack Parsons at what they called this place called the Parsonage. Uh, but this is this is the kind of stuff of these people that took place. And obviously Jack Parsons worked for NASA. He was made rockets and ended up botching a rocket experience uh, experience and killing himself. But that, at least that's the story. A lot of people think that he was killed, but I, I don't know. Either way, he he was a you know well-respected man. And so um, we also have these writings of the Watchers. And this is something that... Um, is very interesting and, and the text that i brought forward at the so just conference. to clarify sorry before you go on um so you're, you're saying that the arcane arts that these guys are practicing in modern day occultism goes back to some of the knowledge that the watchers shared most definitely and and um i can talk a little bit more about that if you'd like before i go into the uh the text because i i can actually kind of bring it all together if you want me to because uh, we're we're looking at the quantum physics, the most popular people in quantum physics, and all these people using this uh, channeling uh, to create some of the most profound discoveries in the world. Um, I don't know how much more time do we have. I might just skip over to that part if you if you'd like. Uh, let me see here. We got about twelve minutes. Okay. Well, let me skip ahead here. Okay, I'm just gonna kind of go through this real quick. This idea of the the Veda scriptures, okay? So the Vedic Scanskrit texts are a, a group of texts that are um, thousands and thousands of years old. They're the most ancient texts that we can find. They're used by the Indians. They were compiled by the Aryans, and they date all the way back to the Tower of Babel. I mean, these things go back ancient. And, and when we talk about the Aryans, that is the group uh, over by Armenia, which is actually the oldest place you can find a map of Babylon. It was included in that whole area of Babylon that was controlled by Nimrod, and the Indians have taken it and used it. Uh, but you have, uh, the Indians have a whole plethora of deities that they believe are real flesh blood entities who practice Hinduism, and they, they all practice Hinduism. And um, I think it's the most ancient and probably authentic source of fallen watcher literature that may come directly from Babylon, from Nimrod. And so we have health. I mean, they have the, the ideas of health. They found a 43, I'm, I'm zooming through this, so if you need to stop me at any point, go for it. But they found a 4,300-year-old human skull with dr uh, drill holes in it. And they concluded that the brain surgery, that was it was brain surgery that was performed on it. And they also concluded that it was a success because there was advanced healing in these brain holes. And this is stuff that you'll find in the Hindu texts. And... There's older skulls than that found in Peru and Europe, almost 5,000 years old, that the same um, brain surgery had been conducted. And uh, a lot of the knowledge f from the Sanskrit texts date back to 800 BC, but according to the text, it even dates back even older than that. But this is, this is before we have uh, the book written by Hippocrates, which is the father of modern medicine. This is more ancient than that. And then you have things like yoga that are in this book where this is a art be able to channel things and yoke yourself to the spiritual light and this is a dangerous practice because uh, even yogis that are very popular 
uh, like Sanguru, for those who some people might know or be familiar with his name, but he warns against uh, the Western practices of yoga because he's he's had many many cases of people doing wrong yoga that have been gone literally insane and filled, been filled with some kind of entity that they couldn't control. Uh, you have aviation from the the uh, Vedic Sanskrit texts. You have um, in the Indiana Congress Science and Technology the uh, in 2015 they were telling young researchers and young uh, engineers to build things that they see in these texts because they're more advanced than what we have because they can fly forward, backward, interdimensional, etc. And um, that that's what they were trying to get them to do just to recreate these things. And uh, actually, uh, a, a guy named Shivkar Talpad tested an aircraft that he made from the Sanskrit texts in 1895, which was eight years before the Wright brothers. Uh, and it flew 120 feet for 12 sec. or I'm sorry, it, it was... Okay, that was the Wright brothers one, but his flew a few minutes at 1,500 feet, while the Wright brothers only flew 120 feet for 12 seconds. So, it flew longer, it flew higher, it flew better. Um, and there's a craft that we see in this text. Uh, it's a vortex with mercury. It creates uh, creates a propulsion. They call it the Vedic ion engine. And if you look up the International Journal of Engineering and Innovation Technology in 2014, you can find the file, you can find the paperwork, you can find the PDF on the on the conference that they had there. Um, they tried to recreate that machine, um, and they developed at Glenn, uh, why Dr. Harold Kaufman, who's retired from NASA, designed and built the first broadbeam electro-bombardment ion engine in 1959 based off of these texts. And we have weapons. This is one of the most profound things here. The Bhagavad Gita, which is part of the Vedic uh, Sanskrit text, is believed uh, to be written around 500 BC, but according to the book, it was written 10,000 years ago, and it was written directly to, uh, directly from the mouth of a fallen angel or from what they call a god. Uh, we have J. Robert Oppenheimer, which was the uh, American physicist and he was the director of the Manhattan Project in the World War II effort to develop the first nuclear weapon. And he's uh, the father of the American bomb, American atomic bomb. And at the Trinity test site in Los Alamos, New Mexico, uh, on a place called the Road to Death, on the 33rd degree parallel, he, sp uh, he spoke these words after seeing this bomb. Now I am become death to destroy our worlds. And after... Um, and that quote is actually chapter 11, verse 32 out of the Bhagavad Gita. And so um, he was raised in a Jude at home, but he was deep in study of Vedic philosophy. His brother said that he had taken taken this text, and he was he said it was marvelous, and he he was just so thankful for this book. He said it was the greatest privilege this century may claim over all previous centuries. And uh, while he was giving a lecture at Rochester University during the during the question and answer segment, uh, one of the students asked him. Uh, he, this is the quote. It says, was the bomb exploded at Alamogordo the, during the Manhattan Project the first one to be detonated? And Oper, Oppenheimer said, well, yes, in modern times, of course. So it kind of leads you to believe that there's a possibility that it actually took place before. And we kind of find evidence of that over Rajasthan, India. Uh, there's a three-square-mile area there that has the highest levels of contamination and radioactive contamination uh, found in, in many parts of the world. I mean, they, it links up there with Japan where we dropped the nuclear bomb. And when they're investigating it, they found a high rate of birth defects, cancer that was in the area under uh, construction, and they quarant uh, quarantined off the area. And um, 
they believe that this atomic blast dated back thousands of years and it was they uncovered this entire city that had been completely destroyed and this is a verse from the Mahabharata and I believe that this describes a nuclear we weapon of ancient times it says a single projectile charged with all the power of the universe an incandescent column of smoke and flame as bright as a thousand suns rose in all its splendor a perpendicular explosion with its billowing smoke clouds the cloud of smoke rising after its first explosion formed into expanding round circles like the opening of a giant parasail it was an unknown weapon an iron thunderbolt a gigantic messenger of death which reduced to ashes the entire race of Vrishnis and Adhakas. The corpses were so burnt as to be unrecognizable. The hair and nails fell out, pottery broke without apparent cause, and the birds turned white. After a few hours, all foodstuffs were infected. To escape from this fire, the soldiers threw themselves into streams to wash themselves in their uh, equipment. And so this is uh, what, we, what I would say is the nuclear bomb. And, I, and if you actually read that verse along the side of a video with nuclear bombs exploding, there's pretty much no doubt. And so we have, uh, we're talking about inventions earlier, we're talking about a lot of these people channeling entities. So we have quantum physics and inventions. And um, in the temple of Rankapur on the ceiling, you find this interesting piece of architecture. Uh, it resembles the Hadron Collider at CERN. If you want me to slow down or if there's anything you want to insert in real quick, you can do that. Um, I have no problem with that. I don't want to, I, I might skip over a few of these parts just because. Uh, CERN, a lot of people probably have your are your listeners pretty familiar with CERN and the things associated with that? I haven't talked about it yet on the podcast, so I'm not sure. Okay, I'll just go over kind of a basic uh, thing about it. But CERN, um, this is a they have the most notable quantum physics uh, practitioners in the world that work for them, um, and they are developing a particle collider which basically collides particles at the speed uh, cl near the speed of light as close to as possible and um they they claim that they're trying to I, I don't you know there's different claims of what they're trying to do there but a lot of people believe they're opening a portal but you find uh the hydrant collider at this temple that i'm talking about it looks exactly like this hadron collider that they built up on the top and um at the courtyard of cern they have a they have a hindu god known as shiva the destroyer of worlds right there in their in their actual courtyard there and so the town in france where cern is partially situated um because it sits right on two countries there is called saint genus poali and the name poali comes from the latin apoliacom uh, which is believed that in roman times that it, there was a temple there uh, existed in honor of apollo and the people who lived there believed that it was a gateway to the underworld and so the it's interesting that uh, CERN is built on the same spot and I actually met a guy at the last conference that has been to this temple he knows where it's at he said a Catholic church is actually sitting right on top of this temple and so we look in Revelation uh, chapter 9 uh, verses 1 through 2 and verse 11 um, it makes references to the name Apollyon and it says to him was given the key to the bottomless pit and he opened the bottomless pit and they had a kind over them which is the angel of the bottomless pit whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon but in the Greek tongue his name is Apollyon and the Greek word Apollyon actually means destroyer just like this ancient Vedas deity Shiva and so we see this entity sitting there which um, that would go right along with the idea that they're opening up a portal and we saw the Goddard tunnel I don't know if you're familiar with that but there was this huge ritual uh, near CERN a few hours away from CERN where they 
um, had this massive uh, ritual, and it was just, if you haven't saw it, look it up. You can find it on... Oh, it was one of the weirdest things you'll ever see. Very much so. Very strange. Uh, I, and there was the people that came there. It wasn't just like a bunch of idiots there. These, It was like a guest cast from the UN. I mean, you had so many high-power people at this at this thing. And um, it is it is bizarre, and it definitely looks like something's coming through a portal. You have druidic ritual-looking things going on. You have uh, something that looks like a Baphomet. You have something looking like beetles and, and like this entity coming out of a portal. And, um, you know, this, this kind of leads you to believe that something's going on there, but probably one of the most popular and most brilliant scientists and inventor that ever walked the face of the earth. And I'm sure everybody's heard of him is Nikolai Tesla. Um, and he said in his book, man's greatest achievements, he said that all perceptible matter comes from a primary substance or tenuity beyond conception that fills all space, the Akasha or luminiferous ether which is acted upon by the life-giving prana. So remember those two words, akasha and prana, here in a minute. So, um, or creative force, calling into existence and never-ending cycles of all things and phenomenon. So the words uh, prana and akasha shows that the father of electricity was verse, well-versed in the Vedic text. I mean, I'll, I'll bring that out. That's the only place you're going to find those words. And uh, uh, his friend Swami... Vivekananda, uh, he was a, a Hindu reformist. This is one of his best friends. They have many pictures together you can find online. But uh, he said, Mr. Tesla was charmed to hear about the Ved Vedantic prana and akasha and the kapas, which the, you hear that prana and akasha again, which according to him are the only theories modern science can sorry, entertain. Now both akasha and prana are produced from the mahat or universal mind. Okay, so Mahat and Universal Mind, remember those terms. Uh, Mr. Tesla thinks he can demonstrate mathematically that force and matter are reducible to potential energy. In that case, the Vedantic cosmology will be placed at the surest of foundations. I am working a good deal now upon the cosmology and eschatology of the Vedanta. I clearly see their perfect union with modern science and the elucidation of the one will be followed by that of the other. So we see this universal mind here which is interesting because I've traced this universal mind idea to so many different inventions in the world and we see this concept in different mythologies as well such as Greek mythology etc uh, the term genius for instance um, uh, uh, m many technologies inventions formulas ideas they've been attributed to spiritual entities and um, there's there's way more than I'd have time to talk about, but in, uh, most of the profound discoveries have a really similar story. And um, basically, a genius is a person who is extraordinary. I mean, an extraordinary their ability to create, uh, to be creative, and to, they supersede everybody in their area of expertise. So, I mean, a lot of people throw the word genius around pretty flippantly nowadays. You know, if you take a test online and you get a 140 you're a genius but geniuses really in reality they're people who actually have made major contributions to the world of science music mathematics etc so but in ancient rome the term genius uh, is plural and the plural in latin is genie and it was the guiding spirit or to uh, tutorian uh, deity or demon of a person or family and so if you look at the word genie or genie uh, genie or genie it's a spiritual creature that's mentioned uh, that's mentioned in Islamic theology. It's also mentioned in other theologies, but um, 
it derives from genius and it's kind of a guardian spirit from ancient Roman religions and um, it's a hereditary genius and it's notable in a lot of families I mean such as you have the Bacon family where many scientists came out of their lineage you have the Darwin family who believed in this that have many scientists coming out of the Darwin religion and um, both of those men obviously this is probably worth noting that they're high-level Freemasons a lot of people believe Darwin was an atheist which is false he was actually a high-level Freemason, and you can't be a Freemason and atheist at the same time. Uh, but the Roman, the, I guess, the Roman idea is that the genie passed on to family, and so the Greeks also believed that they were inspired by the Muses, and uh, there were nine goddesses, and they were the daughters of Zeus and Mnemosyne, and they preside over the arts and sciences. So you have this. Unfortunately, John, we've got to wrap up. Can you finish that thought, and then we'll close this out okay so yeah i can finish out so basically when we look at this you know the word muse etc you have all these words mean something muse is where we get the term music people getting inspiration is we were where we get the term spirit inside um we have people that have have channeled these entities throughout history and um high level mathematics that that give their give all of their um you know, they they give attribution to that stuff for their for their um, I guess acknowledge or not. Let's see what's the word I'm looking for for their achievements. They give attributions to demons, to muses, to to this akasha, this uh, prana, this universal mind for their achievements, including the probably most profound, like I said, Tesla. And so um, when people look at these, and I'm just going to wrap it up. I don't, you know, if I'm wrap it up real quick. When people look at these things and they see the world for what it is when we see that all of these changes in technologies these the way the world is leading when we see that there's something actually guiding the way the world is leading to we see that these people are channeling something that leads the world into a way that it wants it to lead into the new world order things become real and i think that the one place that the church and that the people of god have failed is understanding these things and being able to relay these things to humanity and to be able to let them know that this stuff is real and what they're experiencing is real, whether it's aliens, whether it's whatever. Is it, This is real stuff and that we need to be able to take hold and take guard over these things and to be able to give them, um, put something behind them so that we're not left in the dark. Many churches have fallen, many churches have gone by the wayside because they don't choose to acknowledge anything spiritual, whereas the world is way more spiritual than the church of the almighty Yahweh, which is the most spiritual, most strongest being in the world there's none like him he says but yet the spirituality of the church has been dead died and the knowledge of the church is dead and died for a long time we have a church on every corner but the world is getting worse and worse and worse and it's because we refuse to acknowledge the thing that the world will not refuse to acknowledge and that is these spiritual entities that are controlling the world and so that's pretty much wrapping it up there's you know a lot more i could talk about but i apologize i should have kind of try to wrap it up it's just hard when there's so much different things to say about this oh it's okay there is so much to talk about we could go on for episode after episode about how all of this has evolved and um maybe we can have you on again at some point and go more into depth but you brought up a lot of good stuff and i just wanted to say that uh, it's not only in the indus valley that this technology from the ancient times has been found or has been described in texts. Um, we see it in Egypt. We see it in ancient Crete. We see it in Central and South America. Um, all over the world, we find tech and 
writings about tech that should not have existed. Um, so just to let people know, it's more than just in that one area. But you're right. There's so much in the Hindu culture that um, that we could just spend an entire episode or two talking about all the things uh, that are out of place that we find in their writings and in their um, historical archaeology and yeah such. this is just one this is like you said this is just one aspect i mean you could go off the english cultures all the way back to the scandinavians and to the um all you know norse mythology you could see these same exact things in almost every ancient civilization so i mean it, it you're right it's so widespread and of course we know it all goes back to babylon it all goes back to that uh time when that tower was built and it also actually pre-flood before that but all of our civilizations today head back to the same place yeah, it all funneled through Babel. Well, thanks, John. I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, sharing all this knowledge with us. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on, man. And I apologize for not being able to dwindle it down. It's so hard to uh, get the get this stuff across in a in a short manner. I'm used to doing two hour shows on my on my channel, so one hour just zooms by. And it felt like ten minutes. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's hard. I know. Yep. I always want to keep going. Well, brothers and sisters. If you have any questions for me that you would like to hear answered in a future episode, you can email those questions to me at questions at watchmanalexander.com. That's questions at watchmanalexander.com. And I'll see about answering those for you uh, later on. And I also ask you if you've been blessed by this podcast to rate the podcast on iTunes, because it definitely helps us to get noticed. Well, that's going to wrap up this episode. And until next time, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Watchmen out. Watchmen out.